and you are not alone. Welcome, everyone, to The Road to Recovery. I'm your host, Dan Chuba, coming to you live from West Chicago, Illinois. In fact, I'm broadcasting, as I always do, out of the offices of Daniel & Associates Real Estate. Now, not that you're going to run out and buy any real estate from me, but the point is that uh, I work a program in recovery. I am uh, a recovering alcoholic, and today... I am sober, let's see, 24 years, three months, and one day of continuous sobriety. Yes, yes, yes. You know what? Not applause, but, uh, you know, it's certainly worthy of recognizing, at least for me, because I recognize each and every day that I'm sober because I've been able to function better. I've been able to function in the world today and, and deal with things I own this real estate company, something I almost lost when I was out there drinking, caught up in my addictions. Now, for those of you that don't know, or maybe you're a new listener, or just a repeat for some of you, um, when I sobered up, I was going through a divorce. Yeah, it was my third divorce, third divorce, and at that time, I was 38 years old, and I got to tell you something, I wanted to kill myself. I really did. I wanted to die because I, I just felt like such a loser. I felt unlovable. I felt, you know, when when you're in sales and, and you measure your, your achievements through the success in sales, well, it paled compared to a personal life of constant problems, challenges, and issues. I have three children, okay, that... I personally did not raise. I, I, I procreated. I created them. In fact, two of my daughters uh, have the, uh, well, they've, they've kind of nicknamed me the bio dad uh, because I contributed the genetics, but I wasn't there to raise them. And I can give you every excuse and every reason why not, but at the time it was happening, I was just lost in alcohol and the life of alcohol and the fun and the partying and the chasing the women, etc. And that took a priority. And I copped attitudes and blamed everybody and everything for problems going on in my life and never accepted responsibility. And after the third divorce, listen, I even had two DUIs driving under the influence. Yeah, I, I got tickets. Went to court, was found guilty. I uh, lost my driver's license the second time for 20 months and had to have somebody drive me around. And that didn't wake me up to the fact that I might have a drinking problem. You know, it was the third divorce and the feeling of of just loss and and loser. And I wanted to die, but I honestly, I didn't have the courage to kill myself. I didn't have the energy to kill myself. I I thought it was the, the biggest cop-out ever, and I'm glad I did. And I had a son at the time who was around 11 years old, and I didn't think he deserved for me to kill myself and then have to go through life saying, yeah, my dad killed himself. He was such a loser. He you know, went through all this. And so I finally got down on my knees and said, I surrender. I can't take any more. I didn't have any money. I was financially broke. I had no insurance to go to a rehab. 
I, I, they, you know, my, uh, I was financially busted. I was mentally busted, morally busted, morally. Oh my God, morally, good God, you know, um, spiritually. I didn't even. I knew there was a God, but I was convinced He was pissed off at me and that I couldn't get any help from Him. But I did. I dropped to my knees and said, "I surrender. I don't know what else to do. I don't have the courage and I don't have the strength to kill myself." And I started a journey into sobriety going to a 12-step meeting, Alcoholics Anonymous. And this show is not necessarily based all about Alcoholics Anonymous. It's not. It's a program that I wanted to bring to you, the listening public, to know that there is help out there if you are struggling or if you know somebody struggling. There is help if you want it. And the key thing here is if you want it. You know, and it's so funny that in life, you know, I – teach people in my life, in my office, to sell real estate. And one of the first things that I tell my staff, the most important things when you're working with a buyer or if you're working with a seller, it's almost the same thing. And it really and, – and everybody comes up with, well, that they're qualified, that they have money, that they know what they want, when they want to do it, et cetera, et cetera. Those are, are important, but they're all secondary to this first question. And the first question and the main question is – how bad do you want it? What are you willing to go through to get what you want? And that's the same thing in recovery. Do you really want it? People get into this program or are down a journey into getting sober, and they rally the troops around them because everybody wants to see them get better. Everybody hopes that they're going to get it, grasp it, hang on to it. Okay? They love the attention. And it goes to their head, and they stop doing the things that, you know, they stop remembering the pain. They start remembering all the joy of people saying, what a great thing, and and they're saying great things to encourage, and they stop doing the things that got them sober. They forget the things that, that humbled them. Fortunately, I didn't. I didn't. I kept coming back, and, and i got to tell you, as we do on this show, we talk about my journey in sobriety. And what I try to do is to bring other people that have worked programs, not just in alcohol recovery, but drugs and food and sex. We had a sexaholic on here, a local guy in a business that, that was, was a sexaholic and found recovery because he wanted it bad enough. He wanted to save his, 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 his marriage, which he did, and he got back on track, and he's doing really well. His business is doing well. There is hope if you are willing to go to any length to get it. And we've talked about it, reading the steps of one day at a time and and how it works. But today, I have a very special surprise for everybody, okay? And I have a guest that's going to be joining me in a few minutes here. And before I get into telling you about the, the guest, let me tell you how we connected. I am a member of LinkedIn through business, and i got to tell you, I get so many emails just on my normal email. I get like 500 a day through my real estate, you know, because I use the same email address that I've used for the last, you know, 25 years when they turned, you know, the uh, uh, Internet on, and I started using the same email. I haven't changed it. I don't replace it and et cetera. So I'm, I'm, I'm signed up for a lot of lot of places that I have to unsign up for because I keep getting stuff and things like that. So I'm a little bit overwhelmed. But 
I signed up for LinkedIn and I didn't see a real value in it initially for me because it just seemed to be another Facebook kind of thing. And, and I, I like being on Facebook. I like seeing things and posting things. But long story short, and I've met some really great guests and candidates on Facebook working programs of recovery. They've been guests on the show, some live, some have just called in. And so when I went to LinkedIn, I was like, oh, my gosh, I haven't been on LinkedIn in like like a year. And I'm going through all the messages, and I'm seeing people asking me when the show is and how you doing, Dan, how's business, congratulations on, you know, an anniversary at work, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. And one that caught me was the top post, and it was something that came in 10 minutes earlier and said, hi, my name's Phil the Duke, and – I think I have something of value to offer your listening audience. And as I read about this gentleman, I found out he's an author, a business improvement consultant, an organizational change professional, and he wrote a couple of books, one of which I kind of laugh. I know my shoes are untied. I think it goes, mind your own business, something like that. So without... Oh, and I want you to know this is a live broadcast, as it is every Sunday night. And you are welcome to call in, and, and if you have questions or comments for either myself or my guest, the uh, phone number to call in is area code 323-580-5755. Okay, I'm going to repeat it, 323-580-5755. And... We'll take your call if you had a question for me or for my guest or if you had a comment that something that we're talking about kind of hit home or, or inspired a thought. We want to hear it from you, okay, as, as always. We want to. Now, again, we are in our eighth year of broadcasting. and I know that we get people coming and going in this program, and it's pretty exciting for me. And the, and the main reason, if you want to know the real main reason why I do this show, is because it helps me to stay sober. It reminds me to be humble. It reminds me that, you know, it's easy to think I can go back out there and drink and have a, you know, suppose a good time like everybody else, but the, the, the price that I paid to get to this point in my life was too great, and I don't want to pay that price ever again. Today, I'm remarried for the fourth time, yes, the fourth time, but the first time in 24 years, to a wonderful woman, Martha, who she is like the coolest person in the whole world, and we just spent a wonderful Thanksgiving weekend together um, away from work, and i got to tell you, I was jumping out of my skin a little bit at the end because she drives, and I don't mind her driving. She does a great job, and she cooks, and she does such everything, and tells me, Dan, kick back and relax, honey. And I was like, I am not used to sitting back and relaxing that much. So I was actually looking forward to getting back into the world and getting back to doing things. And, and here it is, the show. So that's the reason why I do the show, because no matter if anybody else gets anything out of it, I do. And that's the way we need to work a program selfishly, one that helps you out, don't do it for anybody else. Don't do it for, you know, there's no glory. There's nothing else that could ever replace just getting the help that you need. So make a commitment here and now as you go forth that you will do whatever it takes to get what you need in your life. Don't wait for somebody else to bring it to you, to give it to you. If you need it, 
go out and get it, and then you'll find that you can function much better because you can help them out because your your needs are all met. Now, all right. I made it wait long enough. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me as we welcome my guest for tonight, Mr. Phil LaDuke from Detroit. Hey, okay, the audience is saying hello. Hello, Phil, are you there? Did I bore you to death already? Yes, yeah, no, no, not at all. Uh, uh, thanks, Dan. It's 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 always uh, wonderful to hear somebody who's overcome uh, addiction. Um, when we spoke uh, about me coming on the show, we talked about the books I had written and have written, and we we're uh, the focus was going to be about. Uh, the second book, Lone Gunman, you're right. The first book is called uh, I Know My Shoes Are Untied, Mind Your Own Business. And it's about all the things that safety people will tell you that are impractical, stupid, and um, downright crazy. Uh, the, the title comes from a um, consulting gig I was doing, oh, close to 30 years ago, where I was walking by an induction hardener, <clears throat> pardon me. What an induction hardener does is it shoots a metal part through an electrified ring. And I'm told, although maybe I may be inaccurate on this, but that this electrical field is stronger than a bolt of lightning. And it shoots these little metal uh, pellets about uh, four inches long and, and about the size of a clothespin. And going through that electrical force hardens the metal. And there was a safety guy who would always walk around, and every time he would see me with my shoes untied, he'd say, Little Duke, tie your shoes. And then one time he got so frustrated, he said, If I see you with your shoes untied one more time, you're out of the plant. Well, the connector here, well, the next, I, I went out that night and got loafers, but I won't have to ever worry about it. <laughs> Soon after that, um, about three weeks after that, the gentleman who worked that piece of equipment had the electricity arc from the machine onto his wedding ring and electrocuted him. It was like he got struck by lightning. He was killed. And it stuck with wow. me that, forgive me, this idiot was so focused on my shoes being untied that he missed the fact that I walked by the exact spot where this guy was killed three times, four times a day wearing a ring, a metal belt buckle, metal glasses, multiple things that could have killed me. But by God, my shoes were tied. But we talked about the focus being about my my second book, which is called uh, Lone Gunman, rewriting the handbook on workplace violence prevention. And, you know, uh, with... uh, with your cooperation, I would like to still do that. <clears throat> but I don't know why it didn't occur to me. Uh, I, my publisher had asked me to start my book. Um, I've already written the fourth book, but she said to put that on hold and write a book about my relationship with my ex-wife. And it's called Loving an Addict, Collateral Damage of the War on Opioid epidemic or the excuse me collateral damage of the opioid epidemic 
So, um, okay, let she me, left let me, me the jump weekend in. after Wait. Thanksgiving. Yeah, yeah go ahead. Okay. I was going to jump in. So you you are a uh, you you were touched by the opiate epidemic going on in the country, correct? Yes, yes, uh, severely. More so, I divorced uh, my ex-wife. Uh, she left the Saturday after Thanksgiving, what the, I call Black Black Saturday. And, this, this, last, um, this Thanksgiving or years ago? Yeah, this this Thanksgiving was 31 years. So oh, 31 years ago. That, okay. I started the book this this Saturday. Okay. I started writing right. it. Okay. Uh, well, so I just uh, just kind of a fit in from where my uh, where I'm coming from. I I don't pretend to know what it's like to be addicted, but I know what it's like to be around that. She had two daughters. Um, I live in Detroit. I saw something on the news where it said, you know, uh, an unidentified white woman found dead in Detroit. I was wondering, you know, is that her? When they did, when we finally did get the call, you know, you call in the night, you, you, I wonder was, you know, is this finally the call I'm going to get? You know, 31 years this went on. When we finally did get the call, my both my, my daughter and what I call my half-daughter, who was the half-sister of my daughter, she calls me half dad. Um, both were out of town. My daughter gets called, but her mother's dead. So I had to be the one to take the girls because I'm not a blood relative anymore. But take the girls to the morgue, and I had to identify the body because the girls couldn't do it. Uh, she had OD'd. She had uh, one was thirty, and the other was twenty-one. Okay. But. Uh, still very hard for, for them. They both were estranged from her for many years. And they both said the same thing to me. We all, we, we both, we thought we had more time. We thought we had more time. Um, so um, I think Jermaine, to, to at least tangentially to, to the focus of your show, um, as is my second book, um, which as we talked about, you know, when we talked about me coming on the show, is about people who commit workplace violence are almost always spiraling out of control under the influence of drug addiction or alcohol addiction. And like many people who do commit suicide, they feel it is the last act that they have control over, which is very sad. Because it's not the last act you have control over, as you know that, having considered suicide and deciding, no, I'm not going to do this. But in many cases, they feel like, I don't have any other alternatives. They've mentally painted themselves into a corner. So for those of you out there listening, if any of you are listening and thinking to yourself, I don't have any other options, I'm here to tell you, you do. Now, in my ex-wife's case, she had been, um, she was not sober. She said she was drunk, and she didn't think she was strong enough to give both up. But she was diagnosed as having COPD, and she thought that meant she was going to get lung cancer. She had just lost her father, who was also an addict. And so she decided to use heroin again. And in, like most um, people who have kicked, she went back to the dosage she had been using, uh, fell to the floor. If the two idiots that were with her 
were anything close to a human being, they could have just called an ambulance and they could have used Narcan and, and most likely revived her. They waited 12 hours instead. Um, some said they didn't want to break up the party. Others said they were afraid they would get arrested. Reality of it. they, man, it's it's that's tough. That is very tough. Yeah, it is. It's you know people aren't talking. When you're in that that low moment, you're not thinking in your right mind. And I'm with you. I think you just have to drop to your knees and surrender. There's just you, you can't be rational in that sit well, in that you situation. Know, you you just aren't able to. Well, I, the reality is, and I know we'll get to your topic because, it, again, it's a good one, and, it, and it's very uh, today, but just to, to advance this, I just had this conversation with my wife we were talking about. Uh, I know several individuals who literally don't want to get sober. They they said they don't. For, for some reason, the pain, the struggle, everything that they're going through is – to for them more comfortable or more manageable or more familiar i i don't even know what the term would be but rather than to go through the struggles that they think are ahead by getting sober and staying sober they'd rather continue to be out there caught up in their addictions and the, unfortunately there are people like that that would prefer to stay you know inebriated or caught up in their addictions rather than to 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 do what it takes to get and stay sober. I don't, I don't I don't understand it. I'm I'm sorry for them. I'm I'm just glad that I found whatever I needed and got it. You know the support from a support group to to get it, keep it. And and I'm not going to tell you it was easy. It wasn't, but it was worth it. Definitely. Um, now your your topic, the lone gunman and, and uh, violence in the workplace. You know, being a real estate brokerage, we have it. We have a scheduled meeting in the next two weeks. Our local police department is coming by to give us a seminar, on the on-site seminar on what to do in the event of an active shooter that takes place either in our office or in perhaps one of the facilities or properties that we are involved with showing. And, you know, my sales manager said, hey, I think this is topical. Should we do it? And I'm like, absolutely. And and then here you are, you know, who wrote this book. Uh, I think it's very timely and appropriate. So um, what inspired you to write that? I, I had written my first book, and I've been a blogger for many years, um, magazine articles, um, mostly around safety. And I was writing the second book, which was going to be my third book, which is now going to be my fourth book. When my publisher wrote me or called me up and said, look, what do you know about workplace single uh, shooter events? And I said, quite a lot, actually. I said, I used to work for a tier one global automotive company, and we had two um, workplace back-to-back, a uh, month apart, uh, events, two different locations, but um, they weren't on site. The gunmen waited until, in both cases, their subjects walked off 
the site, and as soon as they're off the property, then they attack them. Um, one was with her new boyfriend. They drove off and were gunned down, and the second was with a coworker who was male. Her estranged husband assumed that was her boyfriend, saw them at a local bar, and pulled up when they got out of the car, shot and killed them both. A executive, the HR executive at the time, had made the mistake of saying that they don't count because they are they, they were don't off count? the site. And what they he meant, count. he wasn't. He what he didn't mean it that way. What he meant was, according to the law, you have to report any workplace fatality. And what he meant was, they don't count as a workplace fatality. But this enraged our very very decent moral CEO, and he said, all our people matter. All their families matter. And he looked at me and said, I want you to become an expert in this. I want you to develop a course on how do we prevent it, and I want you to deliver it. Fast forward five years. I was at a company where they had one of these. Fast forward Another 10 years, I was at a company um, that I wasn't a consultant to, but um, had had uh, uh, no longer been active there for about three months when a person that I knew and worked with and was friends with was gunned down protecting a coworker from her estranged husband. He was killed, she was killed, and another um, coworker uh, was killed. So was a gunman? Um yes, was a gunman. These attacks tend to tend to be overwhelmingly male and overwhelmingly right. using guns. But I'm very careful because I'm not I, I'm neutral on the gun issue. Um I grew up on a farm. We had guns. I was raised you don't touch the gun, you you know, this is the situation you use this, you don't you don't use them in anger, et cetera. So I don't. I didn't want the gun to be the, the the book to become a gun debate, because to me that diminishes the root causes of the problem, which are twofold. It's almost always there. There's almost always um, a domestic violence element, or a boss who has handled a uh, problem of employee uh, lack of performance improperly, and that is almost both cases almost always has a uh, addiction component to it. Uh, whether it be addiction in the true sense, where your body can no longer function, or your body functions better with a drug than without it, or just somebody who is binging because the rest of the world is beyond their control. So, well, I'm, I'm going to take a moment look into to it. interject here. Yeah. One second. I hope you don't mind, Phil. Uh, interject. No, no, please. I'll you talk know, all night if you don't interject. No, no. <laughs> you, you can keep on going. I just want for the audience, okay, to understand that I didn't have a drinking problem when I got into recovery. I had a thinking problem 
and my best thinking got me drinking. So what that means is that when I stopped drinking, the physical addiction to alcohol was was gone within 30 days, okay? But the mental obsession hung on and still does. It's it's as if it's parked outside my door, and if I am not vigilant, there could come a time where I would pick up the drink or drug again and and who knows what will happen. I don't want to find out, okay? So what I'm saying is that, you know, it's to tie into what you're talking about, you know, whether you're a binger, whether you're a, an active, you know, on a regular basis drinking, it's it's really a mental problem that we're dealing with here in reality. And, you know, you're telling the story about, you know, the workers, et cetera. We just had that happen here last week where uh, the ex-wife and her new husband were gunned down in a parking lot by uh, her ex-husband who came down, I guess he was from Minnesota, and shot them. And then a couple of days later, they cornered him in his car and he shot himself and killed himself. And, yes, there was, there was talk of drugs and alcohol there, too, how much we didn't really get into, but it, it's a reality. It's an it skewed is, it reality, but, but it, it's a skewed reality. But um, for me, when um, and a lot of it's come back as as I write the book, writing uh, a loving an addict, is it's that helplessness when you combine the. Um, the drug use, the abuse, the alcohol abuse, combine that with the helplessness, it can turn, that anger can turn inward and become depression and you want to kill yourself, or it can turn outward and you want to kill them, to punish them and, and to demonstrate that, that you can still control that element of your life. And so she asked me to write it and I started doing the research and it was horrifying for me. Um, Homicide is the number one cause of death for women in the workplace. And since the book has come out, over 70 – actually, the, their initial number, I think, was 77 percent. The National Safety Council had released a study that of non-fatal assaults in the workplace, women are the victim over 70 percent. We can just I can safely say that. I don't remember seventy four or seventy seven. But still, I mean two thirds greater than two thirds of the attacks are attacks on women. They're being raped, they're being shot, they're being beaten, they're being stabbed in the workplace. And that's ridiculous because that's the place we should be able to protect people. And I say people, not just women. Not just men, but it's overwhelmingly women victims. Um, and and we talked about the fact that you have some what I call ogre bosses, and they'll say they'll look at someone with a um, addiction problem, they'll look at their performance, they'll look at their their um, appearance, and they'll want to impose a rule. Okay, great. Now you're going to show them that they have even less power. That can be the trigger that sets somebody off. 
And as wait, I also wait, wrote the book, I was wait, really wait, just, explain that a little bit more and a little bit. Wait, say that again. Well, usually there's, there's usually there's a trigger that, okay, that a trigger um, sets things in motion. So, for instance, okay. the guy who comes down from Minnesota to shoot his wife and her new husband right, probably ex-wife. wasn't just watching TV, enjoying thing, enjoying life, and decided. And now tonight's a good day, night to drive down there. Tomorrow morning I'll get up fresh and I'll go kill the wife and or the ex-wife and the new husband. Something triggered that. It's often okay. alcohol and and drug induced, but that's not the cause. That's not the trigger. Being drunk or being high wasn't the trigger. Something else set them off. And in the case of a boss, it's usually a demonstration of a la- of a loss of control. And what I found worrisome too is, as I did the research, I found that a lot of the things that the law enforcement are teaching people in the workplace is flat out wrong. They're treating. Really? I, inter- I, I, I interviewed. Uh, I was fortunate enough to have uh, a friend who was in the FBI, so I interviewed. Dozens of law enforcement, actually scores of law enforcement, um, and many of them. I I would ask the question, "What do you think about having employees armed at work?" And the ones that I would consider the most on the ball would say, "That's a good way to get get them killed," because the police, the FBI, the SWAT team, they are not coming in there trying to decide. Which one of these seven people with a gun right. is the active shooter? They're going to shoot yeah. them all, or my God, sort them out. And yeah. but but that's what they were saying. You got to remember that when we're talking about shootings and mass shootings are all the rage. So a lot of the people in law enforcement and a lot of the people who've thrown together seminars on this are actually talking about untargeted shootings. So in other words, you want you go and you just want to shoot a bunch of people. Doesn't matter who it is. Doesn't matter if it's black, white, kids, old people. You want to kill people. You want a high body count. When it's targeted shooting, the case you used, that guy came down from Minnesota or wherever to kill his ex-wife and her current husband. Not shoot up a school. Not shoot up a concert not shoot up a shopping mall he wanted to kill two specific individuals what my book deals with is targeted violence how do you protect yourself how do you identify a climate that's that's uh, ripe for a targeted violence event and i wish people more in the public dialogue would use those two differentiators there's targeted violence I know who I want to kill. I set out to kill them. Sometimes innocent bystanders try to prevent me, or sometimes there's someone related to that, like my ex-wife's new husband, but they are people specifically that I want to kill. Now, mass shootings, they may have some sort of, uh, I want to say artificial maybe is the best word, where they say, I hate group X, and therefore I'm going to 
shoot them. They may have some misguided ideology that they say to themselves, I am going to kill because this group of people is bad. But if you look at the victims, look at 9-11. These are Muslims that are killing the great evil um, you know, Westerners. Yet, how many Middle Eastern Muslims were killed? I don't have the exact count, but it's a significant amount. They didn't care about about uh, that. It was untargeted violence. They didn't care who was in that building. They just wanted to kill a bunch of people. So because they're different, they spring from different causes. And different causes require different protective actions and precautionary measures. And so I'm a, I'm a little I was I was really shocked by I belong to many safety organizations being a safety a global safety and business consultant. And there were people up there in front of God and everybody you know um, saying they are experts in this field telling people to do the worst possible things you can do. Um, okay, so what would you know, be a worst the, possible thing? Well, for for instance, if you are, uh, if you're in a mass shooting event, they say run, hide, fight back. What I say is running. First of all, is insane. The human animal is a predator. Our eyes are on the front of our heads, and they are. We've evolved so that our eyes pick up movement. So running draws the eye to to that. So if you have a mass shooter looking to kill as many people, the more people in motion are going to become targets versus falling to the ground and pretending to be dead. Very rare that a mass shooter shoots the same person twice or goes around in their mind wasting bullets shooting people that are already dying on the ground. It's also fairly foolish to gather people into one location, which is what they do now in school shootings. I mean, these shooters are people who are planning things out. My opinion, the best thing you could do is pull the fire alarm because it sends an alarm off. People are going out in all different directions. They're leaving the school. And while some people say, well, I would just sit there and pick people off as they came out. Well, typically speaking, this person is there is it doesn't fit their plan, doesn't fit their view. Is many cases, and this is not me speaking, this is speaking to law enforcement people, they're saying that person's most likely going to panic, drop the gun and run, because they know there's police, fire department, ambulances on the way. Now, I'm not talking so you think about... That, about go ahead. Okay, so you think that they would, they would, uh, that would down, that would stop them or, or distract them, and, and I, I just was wondering about that, would that incite them to more fear and and moving them forward to commit more. It, it, no? it may, but what will happen is it will have rescue um, uh, first responders speeding to the location. So it gives them less time and less time to move methodically from classroom to classroom shooting people. Right. So, Will it work? I don't know. But I know in the opinion of many law enforcement, we don't know because right now we're telling people 
to run, hide, and fight back. Well, you know, well, you know um, what? Uh, just just so you know, it sounds like you're ahead of the game on this stuff because latest, the latest, and I've heard this probably in the last week or so, but the recommendation is not to to hide in one location. It's to get out and and run, um, escape in whatever way, shape, or form you can. Now, again, you know, like you were saying. You know, it catches the eye, but maybe, you know, pulling the fire alarm and then running, you know, or something. Yeah, I, I think that that you're probably right not to, to converge in one area and hide, waiting for and it to happen. And the second thing, and the second thing, okay, so run, we know it's, it's stupid, hide, um, clustering, you know, if you're going to hide, yeah, but don't cluster up. And then fight back if you can. Um what I say is different. What I tend okay. to tell people in my book is, number one, predict. And predict? it starts with, it starts, predict. Um, okay. It starts with your recruiting. If you have somebody who's come in with a black eye or scuffed up knuckles, yeah, then ask them questions about it. Don't just ask those awkward questions. What happened? I have a section in my book on how to to do a test that a normal person will, you know, answer questions honestly, but won't get cranky or disruptive. But as somebody who has a violent temper, it, it's going to start to show that. Right. So, um, I'm pulling the, my book out to, to say the exact um, my exact uh, thing is is my last, last chapter is you can do it and the the, the first thing it says forewarned is forearm. Now that you have read the tight, take time to look around your workplace, determine your escape route, determine an alternate escape route. Pre-program numbers for internal security on your phone and on your cell phone, 911. Identify the closest secure hiding place. And we go on from there. Familiarize yourself with the company's policies regarding workplace violence. Remind coworkers to obey rules designed to protect you. Here's one that uh, I have a whole section on changing your workplace from a soft target, which gunmen prefer, to a hard target. And what, what does that simple. mean? I tell what's the story. Well, what's a soft well, target story, what's a hard target? Well, I tell the story of, of two companies, um, two actual two sites within the same company. One of them, I pull up, and the uh, there's an armed security guard at the guard shack, they say, what's your name, and who are you here to see? If my name's not on that list, I can't even pull forward to pull around to wait for my escort to come out. I have to back the car up and wait. My escort then has to come out and get me. Now, if I'm on the list, they, they directs me to appropriate parking, and then I go into the reception area where I'm challenged again, and the receptionist says, who are you here to see, et cetera. 
I have a name badge printed up and with my picture on it. And I'm, a, I'm not allowed to be anywhere in the building without my escort, including the men's room. Now, thankfully, they don't make him stand there while I'm doing my business. But what they uh, do is he has to wait outside the door. When I come out, then they go from there. Then other employees are directed to, if, they, if my badge is falling off or I put it in my pocket or what have you, they are very likely to, and they're required to stop me and say, excuse me, and they either escort me back to the lobby or they find my escort and remind him or her that I cannot be without them without my badge, or even with my badge. So that's a hard target. They also have key card doors that only my escort can go. So I can only go through one area of the company without without creating a problem. Now, a soft target, company, same, same corporation, different location, um, I walk past the guard tower because it's too big a pain in the butt to keep having the trucks come in and out with it with an opening and closing the gate. So encouraged by my client, I was told and this is not the company I work for now, but encouraged by my client, I was told to walk past walk through the truck and then walk around to the side of the building and walk through the medical door, which is not key carded, into his office. So literally all of the checkpoints have been disabled making it a soft target they don't have key card uh, key locks on the door so I could be going through the building very very simply uh, very quickly very simply killing at will or getting to the person who I wanted to kill Um, another element of a soft target versus hard target is how do you communicate when someone is no longer employed at the company? Some companies are very good at, at saying, and, and I used to work for a company that's that's now out of business, but they would send an email that would say, and I use myself as an example, if I left on good terms, they would say, uh, Phil LaDuke, as of Friday, such and such date, uh, Phil LaDuke is no longer uh, going to be an employee with us. He has uh, chosen to pursue other career opportunities. Uh, We wish Phil success and good luck in the future. Please um, use the remaining time to, to uh, stop by and wish him well. Now that was code for this person has left on good terms. If the person left on less than good terms, they would have the announcement come out day of and say, Effective immediately, Phil Duke is not an employee of our company. Please remember that in all cases, ex-employees must be treated the same as any other non-employee and must be escorted using a badge. You know, uh, where a badge employee must employ them, they must report as a visitor, they must sign in, etc. So by knowing that, I knew that if I saw Phil Duke come marching up looking PO'd, that I better let people know. But if you left on good terms, I see them. I was able to bring them in, take them to the desk, and take them to where they needed to go. It's a simple thing. 
It's a legal thing, and people just miss this. But it's, it, I mean, these are little easy things that are it's a matter of life and death. And again, it's so. It's and we're so, not getting that good advice. Yeah, it's so shocking to me today that we have to go through all these these safeguards, and you know, it's because. Um, well, a, a lot of it, like like you said, I mean, you know, whether it's a focused attack specifically designed to take out individuals or or somebody that's group, um, you know, a lot of it has to do with they don't do this without drugs or alcohol in them usually. That's correct, isn't it? Right. Yes, it it, it, it usually is, or at very least. When they made the the plan and made that decision, when you said you didn't have a drinking problem, you had a thinking problem. Yes, that's where it is. They think up the plan when they're under the influence of drugs. They may not carry it out immediately, but eventually, they that seed is there. They've planned it out. They they know this, and and that's another thing that that can be done is you know the the first thing is they've planned it. You haven't. That's the most deadly scenario. So plan for these things, not to the point where people are living in fear, where they 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 figure that they're sitting ducks, but you know just something as simple as if you think that you have a coworker who is peculiar, acting peculiar, making threats, talk to someone, tell someone, don't just ignore that. That that's something that that too many people do, and. It's it's just so frustrating because they could very easily say. First, we I used to work with a guy, and let's call him Bill. And Bill was peculiar, so just kept to himself. Um, very violent temper, um, and I finally said to him, "Look." Um, this is a workplace, and if you're going to have a temper tantrum, you need to keep that out of the workplace. And furthermore, I'm not going to tolerate threats. So if you continue to make threats against me or coworkers, I'm going to let HR know, and if they don't do something, I'm going to go to the executives, and if they don't do something, I'll call the police. Unfortunately okay, well, for me, stop, stop, stop for one second. I gotta, I gotta stop. I'm like, you know, I, I can see if, if I'm that individual, and I'm, I'm speaking as an alcoholic, okay, someone that was caught up in, in my head and it's crazy ass thinking, and I thought of killing people back when I drank. I'm not gonna tell you I didn't because, because of, uh, oh, multitude of reasons, mostly, uh, you know, my my insecurities and fears that uh, they were making fun of me and, and, and go on and on and on. But I guess the question I have is you're talking about companies. What, I mean, what are we talking about size-wise of these companies? Are these like, you know, three people in the company or 30 people or more? What? Well, in, in the case of the the ones where they actually had the two of uh, a month apart, 
with 6,000 uh-huh. people. And in the case where my friend was, yeah, in the case where I now, now I should have made it clear. When I said that to this person, I started the conversation with, Bill, you're my friend. And I asked you friend, his friend? I want you to know. Were yes. you his friend? Yes or no? Yes, I was. How? Yes. In what way? And I said to him, as I, well, no, I want, we would go to lunch, I, I want you go to lunch here, together. Here, stop for a second. How were you yeah. his friend? Did you know him before this, or you just you were being friendly to him, and thus that that's what made you his friend? I'm, and the no, reason, no, I we have a reason we, for we, we, we met at work, but we okay. we did go out outside of work after this. We'd worked together for about a year. When he, okay. it's about shifting behavior, and he okay. shifted from all of a sudden he was like this. Said I, I'm your friend. I'm telling you as a friend. This is a workplace. You can't have temper tantrums. You can't threaten to kill people. And well, as your friend, see, we, I want to help you. So, but if I can't, if 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 you don't take my help, and you persist in this behavior, I'm going to have to go to. I'm going to have to involve others. And he looked at me and he said, "Is it really that obvious?" And I said, "Is what that obvious?" He said, Really rough times, and we said, "Let's go to lunch." It was about eleven o'clock. I said, "Let's go to lunch. Let's talk about it." And he said, "You know, I'm, I've been. I just broke up with my wife. She left me. Um, you know, I've been drinking more. I've been doing coke, and when I'm not high, I just feel really, really grouchy." And I said, well, you need to get help. You need to get into a program, and I'll help you find one. But unfortunately, um, before we were able to do that, he ended up quitting. Now, that story ended up having, I won't say a happy ending, but an innocuous ending. He didn't kill anybody. He didn't harm anybody. We stayed in touch, and unfortunately... Um, he's still sunk in addiction. His father died and set him back. Um, so it's difficult for me. And I told him, I said, look, um, I, I don't think we can, we live quite a ways apart. He refuses to take an Uber or a cab or whatever to get there. And I said, I, I don't want you driving 30 miles and killing someone or killing yourself. So, you know, if if this is going to continue, I, I think, you know, it's better that we just, you know, not, not see each other for a while, just talk on the phone often, um, but but not but not doing that. And he's doing better, or at least he tells me he's doing better, but it's difficult. He kind of comes, he, he gets himself together for a while. And then the first setback, he, he falls back into a relapse. So I understand definitely with where he's at, but I cannot help him. Um, I've reached the conclusion that he cannot get help until he wants help, until he feels like he needs help. Um, well, he had you, guess, you talked I, about having talk. a. I want to I want to interject again. I mean, <laughs> you make you know listening to you talk sometimes. Some of it has me jumping out of my seat here because I want to re- 
I want to respond from the yeah, person please, with please. the problem. Yeah, with the problem. You know, like yeah. In the first place, okay, I used to resent when people that weren't caught up in drugs and alcohol called me their friend and talked to me like they knew what I was going through. I might have been friendly and, and accommodating on the outside, but inside I was it was really upsetting me even more to the point where I, I, I wanted to put them on my hit list, <laughs> just so you know. Okay, that was me. Oh, yeah. No. And, Don't pretend and, to be somebody's friend. There's nothing's worse that, wait a minute, you you haven't been my friend until now. All of a sudden I'm, yeah. I've got a problem with drugs and alcohol. And right. I, I would I would even say a little further, um, I was out drinking with him. Okay. I wasn't getting, you know, bombed, but I'm out drinking with him. And so I always felt a little hypocritical of saying, you know, man, you know, maybe you have a problem. Because I look at myself and say, Maybe I have a problem. Um, you know, if I'm if I'm looking at him through uh the lens of of two drinking buddies and I've had the nerves to say, you know, maybe you have a problem with alcohol, I would say I would expect them to tell me to honk off and say, Maybe you got a problem with alcohol. But with him, I broached the subject of his behavior at work, but he also had um when I broached this the subject of his um you know, I said, Well what do you mean we went out to lunch talk? He had a um a a DUI drinking um under the influence. They've changed the infraction now, but you know, the what the popular uh term would be drunk driving. Before he was he was found he pled guilty. Before he was brought in for sentencing, he had a second DUI. And I said, uh, a DUI can happen to anybody. But you really have to consider your life situation, your choices, when before you're even sentenced for your first one, you're arrested for your second one. And right or wrong, that's where he was at. But I realized at that point that until he decides he has a problem, then he can't he can't get help. He can't get the help he needs, and only he can make that decision. I can't make that for him, just like I couldn't make it for my ex-wife. Now, part of that right. might be me projecting my experience with my ex-wife onto his situation, but I honestly believe. That um, that one cannot get help until they ask for it, and ask for it because they really need it, and they feel that they they believe that they need it. Well, we, um, we but you're a, right. You know, Somebody was all of a sudden you know, chum because you know simply because you're acting peculiar is disingenuous, and there's nothing worse. That just creates a bigger problem. Well, again, you know, there are times that we hurt so bad we want help, but then we, we, we get beyond it and we want to talk ourselves into being that we're better and that there is a reason why we were, again, you know, I, I wanted to blame my ex-wife on all my problems, and, and, and it was very convenient. It was the third time 
that I went down. And I mean, I had relationships that crash and burn too. And I just, I hurt so bad. I just, I didn't want to feel that pain anymore. And, and finally accepted responsibility. But they, one of the things I'm, I'm told, I was told in recovery, was don't get too well too fast because it's too easy to say, well, maybe it was them, and now that I've got a grasp on it, maybe I can handle it and go back out. And that's not the case for most of us. Yeah. Okay, most of us, we have to look at it like, uh, like diabetes. Someone has type 1 diabetes, and they have to take insulin every day. If they don't, you know, they may be acting normal and everything's good, but if they don't take their diabetes, you know, their insulin, they can, you know, they can have a, um, a go into coma. They could, you know, stroke out or whatever. Yeah. And it's the same thing with uh, with the recovery from addictions, especially in the beginning, that if we don't continue the process that got us sober and kept us sober for that period of time, if our courage, we get that, you know, with, you know, the beer muscles, you know, yep. we don't have the beer, Liquid but we courage. get that muscle. Yeah, that courage. And we think, oh, well, now that things are good, maybe I can handle it again. We need to remind ourselves it's not the case that we can't handle it because if we could, we would never have been there in the first place. So, yeah. Well, and, and, it's, and it's difficult. It's difficult, especially with, with alcohol. Like I said, I've, um, as a young man, especially, um, his issues in in a in a big way woke me up. Um, I I won't have as much as a glass of wine unless I'm what unless I'm walking to a restaurant and walking home. Um, it's you know you it's not just the courage you know you you if you have a problem with something. Um, and clearly, if you if you're drinking and driving, you do have a problem. But if you have a problem with something, you say, okay, you know what? Um, I'm gonna go, but I'm not gonna. I just drink the one drink. Well, then the one drink says, yeah, you know what? One, two. What's the difference, really? I'll just stay a little longer, sober up. And each time you have a drink, it impedes your judgment a little more. So you're making these bad decisions. And I just don't want to put myself in a position where I'm going to um, end up having five drinks because I um, think, oh, well, one more won't hurt. I'm only driving well, three blocks, you know, that kind of thing. Now you're talking my, you know, my my uh, my experience here. Hey, you know what? We're going to take a, a, a quick break, maybe about three-minute break. I uh, usually play a song here at this point. From Marilyn Scott, and and usually run on and on, but we'll just do this one song. Give us like a two or three minute break. So if we need to, you know, get something to drink, because I'm 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 parched in my mouth. I'm I'm drinking some coffee and like get some water, and uh, we'll be back with more of the Road to Recovery with my special guest Phil LaDuke, author and uh, well, just a he he comes with a lot of experience. He was kind of ahead of the game on a few things but author of The Lone Gunman, and we're talking about violence in the workplace and how to, you know, what to do and how to handle it and the impact of, you know, alcohol and drugs on these individuals. Uh, I have a couple other questions I want to ask you, but 
If you have questions, the listening audience, please feel free to call in area code 323-580-5755. And, uh, yeah, we'll take your call if you'd like or ask questions strictly, you know, straight to uh, Phil. Otherwise, we'll be back in a few moments, and uh, so hang tight. Okay, Phil? Absolutely. Okay. If today were the last of all days, would it change how you feel who you are? Would you rise for a moment above all your fears, become one with the moon and the stars? Would you like what you see looking down? Did you give everything? Thank you, Marilyn Scott, for that uh, that wonderful. 
wonderful rendition of Today Was the Last of All Day. I play that song here on the Road to Recovery because it just makes me think, you know, if today was the last of all days, would you like the way you're living your life? You know, it's something to think about. And I realized I wasn't, so I had to change things. And that's part of my journey in, in sobriety is changing things. So um, today being December 1st, 2019. I've been sober 24 years and three months and one day today, but who's counting? But I'm bump me. I count every day that I'm sober. And you're listening to The Road to Recovery here on Blog Talk Radio. We are part of the Linked Local Network of Broadcasting. And uh, tonight I have a special guest joining us from Detroit, a gentleman by the name of Phil LaDuke who is an author and uh, does a bunch of things. Management sounds like management consulting and things. And his last, uh, before we went to break, he was talking about, uh, you know, controlling his drink, saying I'm going to have one or two or five or whatever. But I want to point out that as an alcoholic, I've recognized that one is too many and ten is not enough. Because once I've had that first one, I've thrown my better judgment out the door, and I go, oh, well, since I already crossed that threshold, I might as well just have another one, another, another, and I lose I lose total control of my life. And the only thing that I can control in my life is my decision to not drink. And I can't control the decision not to think because as my sponsor in, alcohol, in uh, AA always told me in the past, that because I'm an alcoholic, I'm going to have these thoughts about drinking. and But in recovery, I know better, and I know to say no. And that's what I've been successfully able to do for these 24 years, three, three months, and one day, is to not indulge, just keep from that first drink. And here we are at the holidays. I'll be getting together with my wife and her daughters and, and in-laws, and they're drinkers. They not big drinkers. They drink wine. And like like I explained last year, we went to a fancy restaurant, and everybody ordered their glass of wine from the waiter. And the waiter came to me and said, "What can I get for you?" And I said, "Well, what do you have in the way of soft drinks?" And he said, "Well, we have this, that, and root beer, and the, you know." And I said, "Well, what kind of root beer do you have?" And he started re- repeat reading two or three different names. And I go, "You know, most most." Most restaurants, they don't have more than one kind of root beer. So I, I figured he was talking about alcohol. And I said, <coughs> no, not beer, root beer. Oh, he says, oh, I'm sorry. Well, we only have one kind, and that's in a box. And I said, okay, give me that. And my daughter-in-law, future daughter-in-law, because we were married at the time, my, uh, she's the oldest daughter, she looked at me and she said, well, what should we have done? And I said, what do you mean, what should we have done? Well, if the guy brought you a beer, what should we have done? And I said, nothing. And she said, nothing? And I go, yeah, it's none of your business whether I drink or not. She goes, but you can't drink. And I said, absolutely, I can. There is nothing stopping an alcoholic or a drug addict from indulging in that drink or drug for that matter. I mean, there might be rules against it, but it doesn't, there's nothing stopping them. And she said, well, I thought... You can't drink if you're in recovery. I go, of course not. I I, I don't drink in recovery. I, I want to stay recovered. 
So I don't drink, but what I'm telling myself is that I'm making better choices, that I am controlling my decision-making, not somebody else. It's not somebody else's job to take care of me and to keep me from drinking. And that's what that's what codependency is about, is people thinking that they can help or stop somebody from drinking or drugging. And that is so far from the realities of, of truism. They have to want it themselves. If they don't want it, they're never going to get it. And if you don't let them hit the bottom, they're not going to hit the bottom. And when you least expect it, you may be disappointed because they may choose to go back out and try it again, thinking that you're going to be there to help them out. Okay, enough said. This is a live broadcast. Again, if anybody out there would like to call in and talk to uh, to us, had a comment, a question, a thought for my special guest or myself, area code 323-580-5755. We have another 45 minutes that we'll be on the air. And, Phil, welcome back to the show. We're glad you, you joined us, bringing your – actually, it sounds like you have some really good – Wisdom and experience, because you were putting all this together about preparing for a shooting place uh, situation years ago, correct? Yes, yes. I had to dust off a whole lot of uh, information that I had. Um, Unfortunately, people don't seem to care about it or they don't want to talk about it until it hits home. And... I don't think anybody wants to believe that it's going to happen in their neighborhood. No, no, nobody does. And nobody likes to talk about uh, domestic violence, which is a big factor in this. And one of the things I found in my research is if a woman, and I say woman, it's 80% of of victims are of domestic uh, violence in in the workplace um, of murders. And by the way, um, homicide has jumped from uh, across all gender, uh, the whole gender spectrum now, has jumped from being the ninth cause, leading cause of workplace fatalities when I started the book to fourth now. So this is, is it's no, it's, you're still about 10 times more likely to die driving to work than you are being murdered at work. But that's not something that we have a whole lot of control over how people drive. We do have a whole lot of control over our workplaces. And, and one of the things that, uh, that I talk about in the book is communication. If you're having issues, most, most facilities, and I've, and I've worked at, at some with, with 30 or less. And now I'm at a company with over 6,000. But the common thread in preventing this kind of thing is creating an open and honest atmosphere where someone can say, hey, my husband, and I say, and I use that deliberately um, because it's 80% of the victims are women. In fact, of women murdered in the workplace, the largest cause um, at 43% are murdered by an estranged husband or domestic partner. Robbery still remains the biggest cause of murder, but we'll never know why, what triggers an um, ordinary robbery into a robbery homicide. 
but even that is not uh, uh, more more women are killed in the workplace than policemen are killed in the workplace, and and all of this uh, um, you know came about for from years and years of of me following this subject, but it was alarming to me how much, as I said earlier, how much bad advice people were given by people who were paid a good uh, sum to come in and, and prevent them uh, uh, or teach them how to react. The time to stop to prevent workplace violence is long before you have an incident where somebody is out of control. But one point I want to make is women tend to, let's just say <clears throat> victims, tend to get a restraining order against somebody who's violent against them. Um, they tell their, their mother. They tell their, their sisters and brothers. They tell their neighbors. They tell their friends. They tell everybody except their boss because they can't afford to lose their job at that point. And they, so what they have created is a situation where their attacker knows where they are, when they're, when they're there, where they park, where they sit. And as likely as not could walk in and say, Hey, I'm here to pick up so-and-so for lunch. And they'll say, sure, go on back. It's an absurd situation. You paint a giant bullseye on yourself. So you really need to step back and say, okay, what can we do in our workplace? We talked about making um, it a hard target instead of an easy target. You know, the the best thing you can do is slow down and restrict access. Key carded doors, you know, if somebody decides, well, I'm just going to shoot through this or, or bang this. I mean, I worked in um, healthcare for, for a while and, we had to have our key card, our, our ID badge, to get to the floor where my office was. Then it opened into a lobby. I had to have a key card to get into my suite and then another key card to get to where my office was. That's a hard target. If somebody wants to kill me, they have to either wait for me in the parking lot or they have to to go through a series of checkpoints. Another thing that I talk about to make it, making something a hard target is duress codes. If somebody's got a gun in your ribs and say you're taking me through all these checkpoints and you say to the uh, uh, the security guard, hey, Charlie, does your wife still make those, uh, sell those scented candles? And the duress code is candle. Then... It's particularly then the guard knows that you're under some sort of duress and can lock down an elevator, can lock down um, a area of the building, can disable your card. That's particularly uh, effective if one he's not married, or two his name is isn't Charlie, it's John, or any one of the other things. But something that arouses suspicion that you might be being forced into and around through the building. These are things that that cost nothing, that are easy to implement, and yet companies are real resistant towards that. And I don't get it. I've got a question to ask you. Sure. Can can companies of that size, 
don't they have HR people that can do a a you know like a, a profile that says this guy just went through a divorce? Um, you know, they, they can check on them to see if the alcohol or you know consumption, what you know, you know, check with his peers, et cetera, et cetera. Again, isn't there some way that they can, you know, in advance be aware that this person might might be um, what are, what's the word? You know, when you're predisposed. Right your hands. Yeah. Yeah, predisposed. Absolutely. And and one of the things I I tell people is prevention starts with recruiting. And one of my uh, uh, former employers said, you know, I read your book, and I got to tell you that really hit home. Uh, I have chapter four spotting the warning signs, but um, he said we have a zero crazy uh, policy now. I'm not crazy about how he um, he phrased it, but he said. We have people interviewed by nine different people, and if they feel, if their gut tells them that this person is off in some way, we we do this. Uh, background checks. You get a background check um, on the internet for someone for less than twenty bucks, and companies that uh, uh, you know, large companies, get a volume discount. We uh, kind of. Actually, kind of a funny story. Um, when I was working at one company, we did routine background checks, and we uh, got a call from the company that did our background checks and said, "This person passed the background check, but we do at no cost to you a test for masking agents." And he tested positive for masking agents. What's a masking? So the guy's agent? wife. A masking agent is some sort of chemical that disguises a um, drug. So an opioid or marijuana, it uh, um, it makes it, it covers it up, so it, it becomes undetectable. Really? And these are sold over the counter. Well, most of the most of the reliable uh, companies test for these masking agents, and um, the guy's wife called us and wanted the results of the test because she was going to sue the company that sold them, see, that created the masking agent that they had taken. And the whole time uh, told her, no, you don't get to uh, get those results because your husband rightfully failed a drug test that he was trying to cheat. But companies... Um, I, I've, I've talked to some companies that don't even do drug testing anymore because they found so few people who tested positive. And I just find so that absurd. It's like, Wait, say that again? Repeat that? They, they, they decided it was, it was an unnecessary cost because they found so few people who were uh, testing positive for drug use. Oh, So they okay. just stopped doing it. And very well, what, few companies what kind of actually go through background checks. What, what kind of cost um, are you talking about? Literally less than $5 a person. Wow. And uh, what does it cost I, to, to protect your workers? And there's yeah. not a company, even a company with 30 people can afford $5 in a, in a $5 background check. Um, 
and I'll tell you a story, and I don't want it to be too gruesome. So I'm going to warn your listeners right now. Um, this is a pretty horrific story. It's true. Um, about a close friend of mine from high school. Uh, she had, she married young, divorced young, and um, later, at an age of about uh, 25, 26, remarried. That marriage fell apart as well. And this guy, the second guy, the first guy was kind of a, uh, a kind of a wild guy. He liked to party. Um, the kind, of, the kind of guy that that uh, uh, life of the party, used drugs, used alcohol, um, but they parted amicably. Her second husband would, didn't even dance. He 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 wouldn't drink, wouldn't smoke, wouldn't dance. Um, just as straight and narrow as you can. He waited. They had been separated um, for about six months. I want to say. He waited until she came home with a guy, burst in on them, chased the guy off, and stabbed her so many times that it broke the knife that he was using. He went into the kitchen, retrieved another knife from the butcher's block, resumed, and came back in the other room and resumed stabbing her to death. Okay. That guy got three and a half years in prison. Was he was out less than three. Yeah. Okay. So now she we're, was, we're she had been got a bigger so many problem. times she could not. Yes. So why did he get so off? many times that they couldn't. They couldn't prove premeditation. <laughs> but and what did they say? It was a, a drug or what? What was his, his? No. Three, three. He was out in three years. Yes. But here's well, what, what here's bigger, what concerns we got a bigger me. problem here, and that problem is our justice system's kind of screwed up. Wow. Well, but to think about this, Dan. That guy, this is uh, going back now, oh, 20 years. Do you think that guy okay. dates? Maybe he's married? Do you think she knows that this guy is not only capable of killing his wife, killing a woman? but has done it and done it gruesomely? Or is it more likely that that person made up a story about why he was in jail or didn't tell her that he was in jail at all? And I don't want people to get paranoid, but do due diligence. People are meeting online. They're, they're you know, hooking up on, on websites, and two hours later they're, they're jumping into bed with somebody. Let's jump back to when we were kids and our parents taught us about strangers and that the fact that strangers can harm us and do some just basic things. Go um, There's a, a national, uh, national database for domestic abuse. So go on there. Make sure that the person, your daughter, your, your uh, sister is, is dating – the people you care about, go on there and see if this person they're dating has a history of domestic violence. You can go in Michigan and in most states, they have um, just offender tracking information systems. The people who are who are uh, have 
committed a felony or out on parole. And that's something you can look up. It's certainly something your employer can look up. If I can do it at my home computer, then a potential employer can go and see if I've got a criminal record. And then finally, the sex offender list is another. I mean, these are these are tools that are free. They they take virtually no time to punch in a name and check somebody out in a broad sense. So back to your original question, isn't there some way we can we can weed out the people who might have a problem, might be predisposed to violence? The answer is yes. And you know, they they they've all got a story of why they're on there. But isn't it better just to not hire someone who has already demonstrated a predisposition toward violence? I think so. Yeah, well, I, yeah, you know, you've got a, an interesting thing here. I mean, because, you know, uh, you know, gosh, that's I, – I, my mind is so filled with many memories. I mean, if I would be held accountable for my actions of the past, I don't know that I would have been anywhere, to be honest with you. And yet I'm not the same person I was before because I went through this metamorphosis in recovery. You know, 24 years, I didn't just stop drinking. I really worked at trying to get my life and my head together because, again, it wasn't a drinking problem as much as it was a thinking problem. And it wasn't enough to just stop drinking. I had to adjust my thinking. And that's one of the beautiful things about the 12 steps of recovery. It taught me how to live life one day at a time. And that's something that I didn't know. And the assumption is made that a lot of people, just because we're adults, we know how to be adults. We don't. We knew how to be children in whatever way that we were raised, and we grew up physically, and time went by. And if we didn't evolve because of good training or uh, education, we might still be that young kid in our heads and yet have the power of education and opportunity to put us in a position where, you know, again, uh, we do foolish things even though, you know, we're holding good jobs and good positions. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, absolutely. You and, I, and I want to make a point here that I'm not suggesting that you would you would look and you'd say, okay, all right, Phil Duke's on on he, you know on this list and he he did time for this. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm not suggesting that you automatically write me off because I believe in second chances. I don't think anybody that uh, um, listens to this broadcast doesn't believe in second and ca- chances, and even third chances. But what I'm saying is, for for uh, warned is forearmed. You talk to the person, talk to them about that, and that. By the way, it is against the law to um, talk about some. You know, people will say, um, "Were you?" You know, we won't ask the question where you were arrested. That's against the law in most states to ask if they were arrested, except in matters of workplace safety and security. So you can ask that. You don't want to be the, um, I don't think, I don't 
I at least don't want people to rule people out on one indicator. I talk about these things as red flags. This person is has a has um, a conviction twenty years ago for assault. Well, that's different than the person who has seven convictions in ten years. Is that you know it, one of them you might want to say, well, this person deserves a second chance. The other you might say, well, I'm not going to give them that second chance. Someone else can deal with that. What I'm suggesting though is that you take an overall look a holistic look at who you're hiring. In too many cases, and this applies to whether the person is an active addict, if the person is um, a potential killer, well, how, if here, the person stop for is one a thief second. or whatever. How do you know whether somebody's an active addict or an alcoholic? I mean, I, I remember sitting in front of a counselor and one of the counselor one of the questions the counselor asked is, do you have a problem with that? drugs or alcohol and I looked at them carefully and and straight face and said no and they they believe me and all well, no, while no, you, don't, that, you don't know you you never you're never going to know uh, because um and it, it, and I know this from from uh, um experience with with my ex-wife she was able to to handle a job she was able to get through a job interview and and do that but if they have convictions on their on their um you know they have convictions for for uh drunk driving or possession of of drugs that's the people you can weed out now now that's there are other red flags that are and and we focus because the focus you so is um the road to recovery and by the way kudos to that i'm a big supporter of of people getting the help they need, but when you when you're talking about violence, while it can be fueled by drugs or alcohol, it may be the drugs or alcohol may be the uh, the trigger that I, not the trigger, but they're already angry, and now all of a sudden they're they they're drunk or they're high, they may act. Uh, more hastily. In other cases, they may that may send them in a different direction. I'm not. I'm, what I'm suggesting is is not just looking and saying, okay, this person's an alcoholic um, or a drug user. Even if you knew that, even if you could do that, and they weren't able to disguise that, then you should be able to say, okay, that's a potential red flag. Now, if you're asking, if you're going, I think I have around thirty criteria in the book now if you've got 20 of the 30 and they're and 20 of the 30 are red flags that's what yeah. i'm talking about you know and i'm not talking that you'd be able to um and frankly i don't think that everybody that is has a uh a dui is an alcoholic um i don't think that that everybody who's who's used drugs is a drug addict um, I think we would, but I do think that I don't think that that uh, one is a red flag for the other, but I think the inverse is true. I think people who are alcoholics tend to have uh, DUIs. People who have 
uh, drug problems tend to have arrests for um, possession. They may not. I mean, we're in the middle of a opioid crisis, and a lot of these people are functioning heroin addicts, which just wasn't a thing 20 years ago. I mean, if you were a heroin addict, you were you were not able to keep a job. But now they have doctors and lawyers and construction workers who get high in the morning, go to work, get high after work. I don't think that's a great lifestyle, and it tends to to build, but they're out there. So I'm not I'm not trying to single in and say, okay, you're able to find one question in an interview or one uh, fact on a arrest record that's going to tar- that's going to tell you everything you need to know about the person. But if you're looking at 30 to 35 things and you have red flag after red flag after red flag, then just ask yourself, do I want to hire this person? Is it responsible for me to hire someone that I believe is capable under the right circumstances, under minimum provocation of violence? Well, you know, I, I was reading something, uh, an article, and I didn't flag it, but it did bring up what you were talking about. And it said that there are people, I mean, just our histories itself will tell us what you need to know. If, if your your life is, you know, where somebody is a single guy for most of their lives, uh you know, maybe there's a reason why they're single because they, you know, and you just have to consider it. Maybe they don't like to get close to anyone individually. I mean, is your job require some of those people skills? And if and if and if it does, don't expect them to change just because you give them a job. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, and once they're once they're in there, it's very difficult to it's, – it's so much easier in this world to not hire someone than it is to get rid of someone that you've hired, to dismiss them. And it's cowardice because they, they – well, I can't do that. I'll get sued. I, people can sue you for anything. But the judge will dismiss it as a frivolous lawsuit or and in some cases they will be you'll have to pay their, that person's lawyer, et cetera. But the, the idea that we shouldn't do something because we might get sued is in my opinion just cowardice. You know, we need we our first responsibility needs to be to protect the workplace. And in so much as you can avoid having someone murdered in your workplace I think that we should do that. And the argument used to be, yeah, but you know how much that's going to cost. And I would say, so what? Now, I do know how much it's going to cost, and it's a pittance. It, it, it costs very, very little to do this, but it takes time. And people are so worried about just getting a body in here. Well, it's they, there's an old saying in HR that says we hire for their um, their technical skills, and we fire them for their lack of interpersonal skills. And add to that someone who's who has bad interpersonal skills, 
and is also a hothead and capable of violence, now you're real messing with him. And Yeah. I, I said, now you have a real mess on your hands, and, and and it doesn't have to be. You don't have to hire people who are 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 when you when you. And I and I I mentioned in the book to follow your gut. If the person seems off, then you you don't you're not required to hire them. Right. People say, well, that's discrimination. Everything about being hired is discrimination. The question isn't whether or not it's discriminatory to um, not hire somebody because of X. The question is, because we do all the time, the question is, is it illegal? Do we have, are we not hiring somebody because they're in what's called a protective class, a protected class, excuse me. So are we discriminating against them because they're a certain race? Or religion, right. or country of origin, those kind of things. And that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about things that are legal, things that are cheap, things that take very little time, but things that companies aren't doing. It's insane. Yeah. Well, you know, this is uh, this has been very interesting. I got to tell you, um, Phil. I mean, I'm I'm so glad you. You called in and, and shared with us. Why don't you, you know, we got about 15 minutes. We still have some time to talk, but why don't you tell us where they can, people can get your books. And, uh, well, and, they uh, can get them pretty much anywhere uh, books are sold. Um, Amazon and um, Barnes & Noble are big sellers of mine. Target.com, um, you can order it on uh, from there. The book is called Lone Gunman. Rewriting the Handbook on Workplace Violence Prevention, and my name is Phil La, with a space Duke. Um, there's another Phil the Duke that writes about uh, roofing and um, and tires. If you get that, if you get a response like that, then that's not the right place to look for it. But uh, um, it's in, available in, in hardcover software, and now we just released it. As an ebook, uh, a lot of people are switching to that. It's it was a tough decision for me, but I tell you, when I get on a plane now and I can have my uh, ebook reader instead of four or five books uh, that I may be reading or, or needing for research, uh, it comes in handy. Um, and of course, loan uh, I know my shoes are untied. Mind your own business. Uh, it's available in those same areas, those same outlets. Well, I'll tell you what, it's been very, uh, um, I don't know, it's been very good to hear your, your story. I mean, it's just what what uh, I came away with is that this was going on for years before the recent, and you've got a jump start on all this stuff, all these these accidents, and, and I'm surprised that somebody hasn't responded quicker, sooner, you know, using what what um, what knowledge and, and direction that you obviously can share with people. You know, to, to yeah, a, lot of the, a lot of the stuff is uh, uh, interspersed with, uh, you know, one of the, um, um, the people who read it uh, that was uh, 
is highly involved on LinkedIn in the safety group said that, you know, they've never seen a book like this that has practical, it's not about, you know, the problem as much as it is what can we do to prevent, protect, you know, and predict this stuff and, and stop it before it happens. So much of the stuff out there is what do I do once somebody's in my office with a gun? Well, right. you're, then you're, then it's the time to think about that is, and it sounds simple and I don't want to come off as being glib, but it's better to not ever have the person in your office with a gun than is to hide under a desk when somebody is coming in with a gun. So my focus is, is how do you, how do you change your workplace culture? So, you don't you're not encouraging these people. Um, The difference between, Going postal, which they found was had very specific causes that were unique to the U.S. Postal Service, and they've done interventions and changed that culture so that um, you know that was a situation where it was part workplace violence, part mass killer. And I make the point in the book: here's why it's here's what going postal is, and here's what a targeted lone gunman, the, um, you know, single shooter event in a workplace. And I should point out too, this isn't at epidemic proportions, but it does tend to follow a pattern where you have mass shootings and then you have workplace shootings about six months later. But what's incredibly disappointing to me is your average workplace shooting doesn't even make the national news anymore. It's yeah, it happens yeah. very frequently, and it was shocking to me. I've had men argue the statistics. My statistics come from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. They come from OSHA. They come from the National Safety Council. These aren't things I'm making up. But men are saying, "Well, no, that 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 can't be right." And women shrug their shoulders and say, "Yeah, nobody cares if you kill women." I mean, come on, we got to wake up. We can't. We can't just shrug it off. No, I have a lot of women in my life. We can't. We life. can't put our heads in the sand. You know, my wife works. My my daughters work. I don't want them killed at the workplace. I don't want them killed at all. But I I certainly don't want them to have an unsafe workplace. Right. Right. Well, we can't put our heads in the sand anymore and pretend like it's going to go away or get better. We have to address it. And, you know, while you have some really insightful things, you know, I'm going to throw out there that, you know, um, if you know somebody that is suffering from uh, alcoholism or drugs, you know, uh, encourage them to get help. Um, but don't try to fix them because you can't. Yeah. You, you know, they need to no, fix you, themselves. No, you absolutely can't. What's that? I see you're right. You absolutely can't. They have to They have to hit rock bottom. They have to make the decision that they want and need help. And, yeah, it, you're right. You should support people in your life that are struggling with that. But be prepared for them to tell you, as you pointed out, to mind their own business. And you shouldn't show, don't be angry when someone tells you to mind your own business. Just recognize 
that you did what you could for that. Because a lot of, like, in the case of the domestic violence abusers and the people capable of violence and the people who are, are behaving um, inappropriately in the workplace, they count on the fact that people aren't going to say anything. And they think that nobody notices. And just saying something, you know, I notice you're having you're going through some real problems here. Um, how can I help? It's better to just to ask, how can I help, than to say, let me get you some help. That's correct. And you know, That's- but you have to you have to be prepared for someone to say, I don't need help, or I don't want your help, or mind your own business. But at least you won't have, you won't be sit, sitting around thinking when that person uh, uh, kills someone in traffic that you could have said something and maybe stopped it. Um, you know, you, you they have to make that decision. But sometimes just a kind word a gesture or, or of concern might just be the trigger that it takes for them to to think differently about their. That's right. That's a very their, good point. Uh, drug or alcohol. A kind use. word. And remember, there's yeah. a lot of people that are recreational users who are not are not ready to admit that they have a problem. That's amazing. It's amazing what you said. You know that there are people that do use heroin on a regular basis as a way of life, just like people drink, and they have no problem. They don't see any problem with it. And, you know, again, um, well, it's just uh, it's very interesting. I don't know that we're going to solve any problems here, but being aware of the problems around you and safeguarding yourself for them is uh, is very important too. And, and uh, Phil, I appreciate you uh, coming on the air and <clears throat> sharing with my audience the uh, your your wisdom and experience and uh, obviously it's been happening for a while and if people want to understand it better pick up your book the lone gunman uh, get some good pointers there are some things to be aware of watching out for them and uh, I'll just keep uh, reminding people that uh, you cannot fix a broke person they can fix themselves believe it or not you can Lend them the encouragement, but you cannot actually do it for them, okay? And proof positive, um, you know, I had a, uh, a guy sponsored, guy sponsored uh, many years ago who is still out there, and he's been to rehab nine times. And when he wanted to go to rehab the ninth time, he asked me if I thought it was a good idea looking for my approval, and I told him no. And he was shocked when I said no. And he said, well, why not? I mean, it's rehab. You know, my family wants me to. I said, because you know what? You either want to be in recovery or you don't want to be in recovery. If you haven't gotten it eight times and you spent $10,000 plus each of these times, what makes you think you're going to get it the ninth time? And sure enough, he went through the ninth time, lost his family because he didn't quit drinking and drugging, and you know, he looks pathetic, and I'm, you know, I'm, he's one of the people that doesn't want to quit. And unless you really want it, you aren't going to get it. So, um, you know, and and you can't 
wish somebody well. You can pray for them and let God, you know, put them in God's hands and say, hey, God, recognize that I can't do it, but maybe he can. And for those of you that don't believe in God, well, you should get on the ball and, and start believing. But definitely choose a higher power and turn it over to them and don't think that you are that higher power. So, um yeah, and, and I would just add to that that while they have to be uh, fix them, that doesn't mean you have to write people off just because you can't fix them. Don't don't necessarily you know, that doesn't mean you should insult them, but you don't just have to write people off. Well, that's that's always the that's always the question. What what is the right thing to do? You know, what is the right thing? You don't write them off, but you, you definitely have to have boundaries. And maybe next week what we can talk about is some boundaries, um, you know, for people that are, are challenged and having issues. Do you understand? And, um, sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's uh, unfortunately somebody's calling into my office line. Can you hear me now, Phil? Yes. You know, we're going to have to wrap up the show. We have a, The show uh, ends in a couple minutes. Um, we are going to be back next week, 7 to 9 p.m. here on Blog Talk Radio, part of the Linked Local Network. You, we have a site. It's Road to Recovery, R-O-A-D, the number two, recovery.club. If you want to listen to uh, this show or any of the other shows of the past, they are archived, and you're welcome to do that. If you have any questions, feel free to call uh, You know, during the week. I'll give you my cell phone. It's 630-918-6129, and we welcome all kinds of questions and comments, uh, your thoughts of the show. Um, and, uh, again, next week I think what we'll talk about is boundaries. Maybe uh, you'd like to join us on that one, uh, uh, and I'm talking to a listening audience. Phil, you're always welcome to call back or, you know, uh, advance, you know, if we could help you uh, advance your sales and learn more from your wisdom, that would be great. I want to say I, I appreciate personally that. appreciate you coming on the show. I hope it was good for you. It certainly was. Thank you very much. I, I, I enjoyed talking with you a great deal, and hopefully the listeners do as well. Well, we're going to let Phil go here, and folks, uh, again, uh, what Phil brought up was it uh, was an interesting Phil? I'll give you a call back after the show, okay? Okay. Thanks. You know what Phil brought up was a, an interesting point, and during these holiday seasons, what I'm going to encourage you to do is to reach out to somebody if they seemed seemed strange or unusual or to themselves. Reach out and say hello. Give them, uh, you know, shake their hand. Give them a pat on the back. Maybe give them a hug. Okay, um, but don't don't shy away from them because isolation is the worst thing for anybody with an addiction. And if you're caught up in your your head and your thoughts, being alone in your thoughts, that's the worst place you could be, especially if you're drinking or doing drugs. So reach out and invite somebody. Maybe invite them to your house for a meal. That might be a nice thing, and get them started thinking beyond themselves. Okay. Uh, listen, I appreciate you listening, and I hope that you'll join me again next Sunday night here on the Road to Recovery. Again, we're part of the Linked Local Network of Broadcasting, and we'll see if uh, we have a guest. If not, we'll talk about what we talked about today maybe or definitely going to talk about uh, enabling 
and codependency. Have a great week, unless you have other plans. Good night, everybody.